You're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian. I'm here with Paul. And uh, Paul is uh, coming in from his new uh, his new digs, his new, uh, new castle, his new place, his new abode down in Waco, Texas. And he's house-sitting for somebody, allegedly. Or maybe you just wandered into that house and just set up shop. But uh, how, how's life... Squatting. Yeah. How's life treating you out there in Texas? I feel like everyone on this podcast is very intimately acquainted with my life details. Because I feel of... like I'm doxing you every week. They're just going to find you. And, and it's like, like why, is, why is Paul keep moving around? He just keeps getting fired. Exactly. Exactly. But uh, tell us what you're going to be doing out there, Paul. I am working on being an ethicist. I'm doing like bioethics stuff. Basically getting paid to live the life of a philosopher. I'm literally getting paid to read and write philosophy. What are you reading and writing about? Philosophy. Uh, to be a little more specific than that. Uh, bioethical stuff, like specifically knowledge and abortion and end of life stuff, brain death, um, stuff on like philosophy of biology and organisms and virtue ethics and human good. All of this stuff you're doing, you're reading about all this stuff. Yeah, man. Like that's basically what a postdoc is. You are expected to, they give you like 18 months or two years and you're just supposed to like publish a crap ton of stuff. So how many papers are you supposed to publish? There's no official quota, but like you're supposed to utilize the time. And so the goal is to like have five or six published by the next like 18 months. I mean, do you have like a schedule that's really tight where you're like, I'm going to study four hours on this and like, how do you organize your time like that? That's a that lot is, to That's read. a really good question. <laughs> I guess you just got like there. Just, yeah. Like, I feel like I was just tossed into the deep end of the pool and you have to learn to sink or swim. I mean, there is no real schedule. You just have to make your schedule. And I'm realizing very quickly that working either working from home or working without like a set structured schedule is can be tough. And you just have to learn to self-motivate and plan. So you, and, you wake up and you tan a little bit and then you do, do like yeah. <laughs> your yoga. Yeah. You water your flowers. Yeah. I am. Um, acupuncture. Yoga, Bikram yoga. That's right. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, I mean, are you picking out the books that you get to read? Do you get to choose all the resources you want? Do you have an access to this hidden library of things that normal folk can't look at? Well, I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about being part of a university is you just get access to all of this online stuff through databases and EBSCO and JSTOR. And being part of a big university like Baylor, they just subscribe to everything. And so I get electronic versions of basically everything that's ever been published. Which one are you it's tackling kind of first? Of all that, that, that whole list of uh, things you're studying, which one are you going to tackle first? Um, I'm, I'm giving a a workshop presentation, uh, I think two weeks from now on this idea that you have to know that your action is not going to kill someone before you do it. So there's, there's a literature on knowledge norms. And so like, it's not, it's not enough to, to be very confident or fairly confident or think that, well, there's an 80% chance that I'm not going to kill someone by what I'm doing. Like, actually there has to be a relationship of knowledge between the person doing the action and the action itself so that you don't commit murder. So all this is going to have implications for things like abortion. Um, I don't think we, I don't think that anyone doing an abortion knows that their action is not the intentional killing of an innocent person. 
Um, and so because you haven't met that bar, it licenses caution and erring on the side of, yeah, erring on the side of caution. Um, that's a recent project. With regard to? With regard to, oh yeah. So basically it says that unless you know that what you're doing is not going to kill someone, you're not allowed to do it. And I think that's a bar that we don't have in cases of abortion and lots of end of life um, situations like brain death and euthanasia. Um, and so these are things that we do when we practice these procedures like abortion, um, organ harvesting from brain dead patients, euthanasia. Um, and the, the idea and the justification there as well, there's, we're pretty confident that um, we're not killing someone intentionally here, or there's no innocent person who's being killed here. But that's not like, it's not just a matter of percentage or statistics. Um, there's a much higher bar that you have to cross before you can do something like that. You have to know that your action is not going to result in the in the killing of an intentional innocent person. Wow. We should save that for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. Once you, you got to read a little more technical. about it, right? You got to read a little more about it and then you're going to present yeah. in a couple of weeks. That's right. Okay. We'll do one I'm on that because I'm, I'm interested in this. But uh, for now, we're going to look at something that you found from the EPPC, the Ethics and Public <laughs> Policy Center. Why is that funny to you? It's funny that EPPC just sounds like a like a made up abbreviation or acronym. <laughs> it's like if you're trying to come up with an organization, you're like, uh, it's the it's the EPPC, CD, CBD, it's CBD. <laughs> but uh, the title is "Mama Shot the Deer." It's by Ryan T. Anderson, Catholic writer, and he's a pretty well known guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's writing a little bit of a personal. Uh, article about his experience homesteading or basically living out in a farm and uh, what that has done for his parenting, how it's changed his perspective on a lot of things. So I know you for love readers, this. Ryan Anderson is just Brian's like alter ego. It's my alter Ryan. ego. <laughs> right. He's got Brian's actually got a farm and like five kids that he doesn't tell anyone about. Exactly. Exactly. And uh this is uh so th this is my secret life that I'm speaking about third person, but uh, you really like my secret life. You sent me this article about me apparently, <laughs> and you went nuts. You went on a tear. You were saying this is how everyone should live. We should all live on a farm in a commune. Two parents. Oh, I, I did not. I did not go. No, that no, no. Far. Let, let, let me misrepresent you okay. really yeah, quickly, go ahead. and then go ahead. So what I heard from you was, this is the future. We need to all live in a commune, raise chickens, kill deer, do all that stuff. That way our kids learn to be connected to the earth, become hippies. And this is a new way to teach your kids because, and this was your hot take, that you think that the reason people are denying the faith is because they're growing up in two-parent households and they should instead grow up in a hippie commune. Is that correct? I am, I am never going to text you my my ill-formed late night thoughts again because they're just going to get aired out all over the internet. It's too late. It's already done. So now tell me what you actually think. What struck you about this article uh, where, you know, just as a summary, Ryan and his wife, they decided to homestead. Basically, they got some land and they kind of farmed and lived off the land and grew crops and had animals mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And he realized that it really helped his kids uh, see and in, in, he says uh, he wants them to learn things in their bones. Like he wants them to have a sense of 
the cycles of life and, and what it means to bring up crops in the ground and share them with people and what it means to really depend upon God, see all of creation as a gift, have their life connected to tangible things in which they see that they're being provided for, all that kind of stuff. And you really resonated with this. What really struck you about this vision of life that Ryan laid out? Well, just to clarify, I don't think everyone should live this way. If anything, this is like a a fantasy or a romantic version of what I think or hope my life would be like in the future. But I will say that as I've gotten older, I mean, I'm a city boy. You're a city boy. I grew up in New York City. I'm a suburb guy. I mean, okay. You grew up in Pittsburgh. It's like kind of a city. To a New Yorker, no other city is a city apart from New York City. So, uh, but I'll, I'll I'll grant that we're both kind of like city folks. We like our modern amenities. We like convenience. Yeah. Um, but I think that I don't know. I noticed this as I got older. When I moved to other places outside of New York City, I realized that I had much better and deeper community because New York City can just cannot foster a sense of community. It's so big. It's so sprawling. It's so high paced. You have to get on the subway for 45 minutes to go see your friends. And it was just, it's a very disjointed, disconnected sense of living. So I noticed that when I moved to Tallahassee for the like first time, I hated it at first. I was like, there's nothing to do here. This place is just like Southern country bumpkin life. <laughs> and they have the audacity to call this a city because, ooh, we have an international airport, which has like one flight to Puerto Rico. Um, so I was definitely like crapping on Tallahassee a lot. But then, I don't know, call it maturity, call it sanctification. I was like, oh no, I get to actually do life with people and bump into people at Whole Foods or the local coffee shop and live like within a 10 minute drive of every single person that I like to be around. And that was huge. Um, and I think I got a better sense of that when I moved to Hillsdale because Hillsdale's 8,000 people, a tiny little like blip on the highway as you're driving through, surrounded by cornfields and farms. And I got a much deeper appreciation for that. I was like, oh, well, like, this is really how you can do life with people because you're just seeing them all the time. You can't not see people when you walk outside in the town of 8,000 people. There's one and a half coffee shops. There's five churches. And I don't know, something about that is very, very attractive. Maybe that's how God designed us to live. I don't know. You're giving me this like weird, terrified stare. <laughs> you're like, that no, no, awful. no, I'm, I'm listening. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually also looking at some of the article where he you know, he, he talks about how they they just bought some land and they bit by bit started living this home homestead life. Like it wasn't like one massive project and a lot of stuff they discovered as they went. Um, but yeah, I mean, you've expressed these thoughts before and it is quite a radical change, but there is a kind of romanticism to it. It feels simple. It feels like you're focused on, it, it almost feels like you have to think more about your life as you're raising animals and you're doing whatever farm things you got to do. <laughs> but there is this connection between your effort and actual like, and, and the actual world mm -hmm. where a lot of work now is digital and it's kind of disconnected. And, um, and there's something about that. And also you were mentioning just being able to be in walking distance or well, driving distance of mm -hmm. other people. Um, but what about this in terms of farm life? I mean, you could still be like, just move to a small town, but this is yeah. a little more, remote right um they're talking about raising pigs 
and then telling and their kids look forward to one day eating the scrapple and bacon produced by their namesake. So they name their pigs and then they're ready to eat them. What yeah. she talks about is a way that they learn about how animals are different from humans and you consume mm-hmm. animals and that God has created these animals for our consumption. So they have this sense of the order of the world. Right. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing. But uh, and there's, yeah. there's, there's there's kind of this idea, like most modern Americans have this like schizophrenia when it comes to like animals and animal death. <laughs> all of us are very happy to go to the supermarket and buy beef and chicken and all this sort of stuff. But the moment you mention like hunting, people are like, ooh, like you're willing to kill an animal? I'm like, yeah, well, you're willing to buy this animal. It was killed by somebody else. And like far worse conditions because if you're like buying meat from a grocery store you're buying meat that was like raised in a factory where animals didn't have room to move around and they were just basically like tortured and cooped up their entire existence before you get to like eat them or buy them from the shelves whereas like farm raising animals on a farm or hunting you're actually like allowing animals a good life before you kill them and consume them Um, but it just always struck me as very bizarre that we have this we're so willing to buy animal products. And yet, like the thought of hunting or killing an animal we see as brutal or cruel or just like, oh, I could never do that. I, I, I could never see that. I could never like that just it, it's it's just it's really bizarre. And so I think like homesteading may basically allows you to avoid that disconnect. Um, if you raise your kids around animals and they see the circle of life, they know that animals are cute and fun to be around and it's cool to go out and raise them and pet them and all this sort of stuff but like they serve a purpose right and so they're they're one day going to to feed our family and to make sure that we have enough nutrition during the winter and all this sort of stuff death does not become a foreign concept there's no squeamishness um over the idea of animal death the circle of life and it sort of it it gives a greater sense of appreciation for your food and like what it takes to get that on your plate. I don't know. All that sounds very attractive. And again, this might just be me as an academic overly romanticizing the other side, but there's something really powerful about that. And I, I think it could do wonders for parenting and like your kids' psychology and well-being and all this sort of stuff, given that this is how humans like lived for thousands and thousands of years before the modern period. So the animal death thing, I mean, one of the things that Anderson talks about is showing that we treat animals with dignity, but they're not humans, which today it seems like more and more people treat animals like humans. Although there is that contradiction that you're talking about where they'll still eat mm-hmm. the meat sold in the uh, stores. That death concept, though, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, what do you what, what kind of issue is that tackling? Do you think people today are too squeamish about death or not thinking about it? I mean, what I mean, you kind of it, it almost feels like something you want to shield your kids from. You don't want to. to become morose and think about death too much, but maybe there is something to it. What do you think? I mean, I, I, if, if you want to adopt that view, then go the whole way and like totally avoid animal products. But this right. kind of like the inconsistency is I think what bothers me. So like if you're willing to feed animals to your kids, but you don't want them to know like what it takes to bring that about. Um, I think like, I think there's something bizarre about that. Um, like removing the fact that death had to happen before you can enjoy this like hamburger on a Sunday afternoon. That's just, I don't know. It, it tends to remove you from the suffering that's required for the thing 
for the good to ha- have happened. Um, right. Yeah. And it's part of a whole order. I mean, he talks about everything on the farm contributes to its order in some way. Rabbits and pigs are for meat. Sheep are for meat, wool, and milk. Ducks and chickens are for eggs. And they eat insects in the garden. Um, the cats eat the mice. The guineas eat ticks. Meanwhile, everything produces poop, which nourishes the soil. He said spreading manure is oddly satisfying. <laughs> and, uh, and why you don't eat the horse, because they contribute in a different way to life. And how you, you know, moms and dads differ, sex reproduces, death is natural. So I guess it is one of those things where if you're disconnected from this, then that's when you buy into all of the crazy ideas about gender and these things. When actually, if you're in the natural world, you're like, oh, there is this order. There is the way that things are. And we have to find our place in it. Whereas I think increasingly, if you're detached from that, you, you think that you can kind of design the world to be whatever you want it to be. Like, you can go to a supermarket and get whatever kind of food you want. It doesn't matter, you know, the cycle of life or any of that kind of stuff. It's it's removed from the pattern of the world that we would have instinctively seen. You know, it's it's like it's what was intuitive for past generations because they were just surrounded by it mm-hmm. is not so intuitive for us. Because everything's yeah. technological, everything could be kind of just brought to us and made without us seeing the process behind it. Well, this, I mean, this is the big critique of technology. Every time like there's a new technology or a new like burst in technological speed and innovation in a culture. The the big critique is always the more we're able to master nature, the less we're able to recognize it. So the the fact that we have so much power over nature gives us this idea that nature is more malleable than it actually is, or nature doesn't have any depth or value to it. So when we look at like human sexes and reproduction and nature and all this sort of the more we divorce ourselves from nature by being able to master it through technology yeah the, the less we're able to see nature for what it is so i uh, i really like this point in anderson's not their just the article but their their whole philosophy of parenting that like not just teaching your kids about human nature but allowing them to live and see nature for itself so that it's like it's in their bones is the phrase that he uses over and over and over. They see death, they see reproduction, they see things are ordered to certain ends and not everything has the same ends, but there are different goods. And there's a, there's a whole dimension of providence and things not always working out the way you plan, right? Like you can do everything right and, and plant seeds and water and all this stuff. And like due to some fluke of nature, like you just don't get a harvest because the snow destroys it or flooding or something like that. But on the other hand, like there's also like providential flukes, right? He talks for one, like an example of the the fig tree that ends up like blossoming despite all odds or something like that. Like God, like there's this element of providence in nature that I think, again, the more reliant we are on technology, the less we are able to appreciate that. Well, he says, we use technology, a well pump, a hose, a sprinkler, a tractor to make fruits spring from the earth more abundantly. So it's he's trying to harness nature. So he's not saying technology is bad. Right. But he's almost saying it's a way of cooperating with nature rather than destroying nature. Mm. And he talks about, you know, there's a season for sowing seed, a season for weeding and watering, a season for harvesting and canning, uh, canning, internalizing these natural rhythms and the meaning of the rhythms we hope will translate to dealing with other cultural challenges later on. So he kind of sees this as a building block of internalizing natural rhythms, even just rest or 
that there are different seasons. I mean, I, it, technology really does. We are the seasons no longer really affect our work and neither does mm-hmm. available sunlight. And so we can have the idea that we can live beyond our limits. And now we have to kind of impose those limits upon ourselves. And I think that's what's driving a lot of this, where a lot of these things, we were limited in a good way. Now we can be unlimited, but that's not always a good thing. But the mm-hmm. problem I always have with this is I'm like, you can't go back. We have technology. And and I mean, Ryan Anderson's posting on a website. He had to have Wi-Fi to send this from his farm. And there's got to be some way. How do you cultivate this in a modern world, in the suburbs? If, if you know, no, everyone's not just going to go out to the homestead. There's got to be, how would you cultivate this? outside of just a rural lifestyle is that even possible i have i have no idea uh again so this is part of me just thinking about kind of idyllically what if 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 the world were perfect what might it look like i don't know we might still have the internet but we wouldn't have all the terrible stuff and like that's an interesting thought experiment thinking about the new creation like will we have the internet and the new creation will people be homesteading or will it look more like cookie cutter development suburbs like what what sorts of <laughs> structures are beneficial and conducive to human flourishing? And I don't know, like there's not an easy answer there, but you're right that like there's a lot of good that's come about with the internet and technology. But I don't know, may, maybe there's something to like the Amish, while like, of course, their their philosophy is really radical. They have this idea where they don't want to jump on a technology before thinking through its implications, right? right? And right, so I think yeah. that, that that's a healthy instinct to have. Um, don't like, I don't know, should we, should we jump on the VR craze before thinking through what this might do to our interactions and our expectations about reality? I don't know. Like maybe we should just cultivate a little bit of caution about new technology. We've already heard like so many criticisms of social media and the internet. And so it's almost like, it's just, it feels like we're being lectured to anytime someone yeah, brings that yeah. up. We know. Right. But right. what about like, the new stuff that's that's coming up, like I don't know, AI and Chat GPT, um, like the virtual reality type stuff. Yeah, maybe this is a space for like Christian theologians to encourage caution. Um, we don't always have to jump on technology the moment it's available, and so I think that kind of tendency is a very practical one to begin inculcating in yourself and your families, just a kind of like healthy dose of skepticism. Like, sure, there might be something good accompanying this new innovation, but like, let's think about what it might do to our interactions and our psychology before we wholeheartedly endorse it and jump on it. Maybe that's it. Are you going to homestead, Paul? Um, if, if I lived somewhere that I could, yeah. I mean, part of my attraction to small town life for all of my denigration of it is I would love to like have a little bit of land and have some chickens. And like, if I have a family, I'd love for like my kids to be able to run outside build forts, like playing around in nature, like that just, it, that's the childhood that I always wanted. Um, I think there's something like deeply good and rich about that. Is it even realistic though? How much does this cost to live out in a, I mean, land isn't cheap. And I mean, what are you going to, I don't know. Like if you, if, if you live in a small town in the Midwest and you bought like a couple acres, that's going to cost you less than like buying a house in Tallahassee. Maybe the one <laughs> Egyptian guy in the Midwest. That's true. I mean, like the lack of diversity is a huge issue. Like when I think about, if I raise my kids in a small town, like I'm not going to expose them to cultural diversity, racial diversity. I think those are goods, like to be able to engage with people who don't look like you. 
And so that might be one dark side of like moving to a small community type place, but nowhere is perfect. Or well, maybe know. you start the Egyptian revival. No, I'm not <laughs> deeply terrified. I just, in my mind, I'm like, when I read these, I'm like, yeah, I don't really want to live on a farm, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> are you saying that we should all, if, like, there's no way that this is everybody, you know, I know he's not saying everyone should live on a farm. And I think there's good here, but I'm like, there's something, I'm, I think there's something more fundamental that's a universal principle that can be applied across the board. Because I mean, farm living is hard too. And, you know, I mean, I, I just think about whenever we are romanticizing the past, it's also like, yeah, but you also would have died of tuberculosis and there were always wars sure. and, you yeah. know, all this stuff. So there's got to be a way to reinterpret or, or bring those principles into the 21st century in some way. I mean, Right. Absolutely, I mean, yeah. otherwise yeah. we're just kind of being romantic, romantic about right. something. And um, I don't, yeah, I don't think the critique of technology should be let's all go back to the 16th century, but let's use like human history to illuminate our current blind spots. But, like that's all I'm saying. But I'm saying like with the is there a way to teach your kids about death without having to raise goats? Is there a way oh, to sure. teach them about their connection to the land without having to actually have acres of land? Yeah. Well, I, what I, would that that's definitely that possible. The The argument that Ryan Anderson's making is that this is like raising your kids literally on the land is like a shortcut or a heuristic or a way that like helps the truth penetrate deeper than just like a lecture or an abstract sort of like lesson. They, they're literally seeing nature and reproduction and death and order and natural goods and ends and all this sort of stuff so that they... They're, they're moved by it. They can't not see it, right? They don't have to rely on their parents' testimony for believing this thing. They've witnessed it. And so in a sense, it is part of their paradigm. They can't help but see the world in this way because it's just so glaringly obvious in front of them. And like, if you raise your kids a different way, like that's, they might be able to instill or have the same sorts of views. It's just not going to be acquired the same way. That's true. It would kind of just be in their heads. And I guess there's something to being surrounded by natural beauty and, and seeing God's glory de depicted in that in, in a non-intellectual way, just kind of by osmosis, just being around it. I mean, and I, I thought it was moving when he talked about how uh, the cultivation of a family culture is a long-term process and they've made mistakes. There are things that are beyond their control, which you learn, you know, mm -hmm. out farming, droughts, disease, cleft palates. Um, and he says, it's a bit like raising kids. Who knows if any of this will pay off for them? Like our crops and livestock, children are recalcitrant to some forms of control, but unlike them, they're endowed with free will. Like all of creation, our children and their choices and characters are themselves gifts from God. And so we do what we can, hope and pray, and ultimately let go. As my wife reminds me, mistakes make good compost. That's a great line. But there is something to that, right? We, we hope and pray, and then think about how many agricultural references there are in the Bible. Yeah. Plotting work, the idea of being faithful, but ultimately the fruit is up to God. I think that mm -hmm. is something powerful and very difficult because I think I'm not a very patient person. And so, you know, you're just kind of like you, you want everything to happen now and you feel like you can because you can access any information you want. You can call any person you want. And it's kind of jarring when I read this. I'm like, man, it would be painful, I think, 
having to slow down mm-hmm. to live this kind of a life. Um, but maybe because it's so painful, that's why we need those external kind of restraints to be like, you got to get up and do this thing. And you've, you've got to trust that God will take care of the crops and all this stuff. Um, and it, I mean, it's, Anderson has still kept his like full-time job writing and like doing all the stuff that he normally does. This is just in addition to his life as a public intellectual. So he, he sort of like tried to find a way to have both. And I think that there's something admirable about that. Um, so he's, he's not like a recluse who's like totally gone off the grid. Sure. He's just like bolstered his, his academic profile and way of life with like a very natural way of being in the world. And I think that that's pretty cool. But how practical is this for most people? Probably not. And again, this is not like an endorsement or a prescription that everyone needs to do this. I'm just like, huh, this is kind of cool. And yeah. if I could do it, I'd, I'd like to, because I think that there's a lot of lessons and sure. I don't know, even just like psychologically, like being able to slow down has been huge for my well-being. So the like New York fast paced life, while like fun and interesting in like small doses, I think is just not sustainable for life and most what? people don't live that so like that's true yeah how, yeah how how have you slowed down um like i have like now made an hour-long walk part of my <laughs> part of my daily routine every single day and i like purposefully pick places that are in nature like in parks or by rivers and i don't know just like having the space to do stuff like that uh, where i have like no responsibilities i can just like reflect or meditate or listen to an audiobook or listen to music that's been like really great and i force myself not to do anything academic or work related and just just like unwind for an hour that's been like wonderful and you can't you can't do that in like a big city tallahassee you probably could because you've got parks and stuff but i don't know like the effect of nature like actually looking at nature visually and being in it definitely does something to your soul it's it's soul enriching it's soul enlivening um brett Brett mccracken has that new book on the wisdom pyramid where he talks about how um, our influences should come in like similar ways to the food pyramid so like we should have sugars and fats in tiny amounts and then carbs and more amounts and then uh, meats and proteins and like the base should be fruits and vegetables and so like the problem with american obesity is that we've like inverted the food pyramid like most of what we eat is sugars and fats and stuff like that. And we like only take a little bit of fruits and vegetables. So he says something similar for how we like intake information from the world. We should be like looking at screens and using social media and media like we do sugars and fats, but that ends up at the bottom of our like life pyramid where that's the most of our input comes from that. So his pyramid is something like scripture, church, family, nature, books, music, and then social media at the top with those being like the things that have, should have the smallest role in our lives. Um, and basically like disorder happens when we invert that pyramid. But I just found it interesting that he has nature on that. Like just being outside in nature is a kind of like input that we should regularly have in our lives to live a well-ordered, good, healthy life. Um, I think that insight is important and we should take that more seriously. It's just thinking about an I mean, it's like you gotta exercise every day and walk and meditate for an hour and you've got to do a prayer. And and I'm like, it just I, I don't know who's actually doing all this stuff. No, I don't, I don't do either. It. 
you know i mean like monks, it's quite, yeah the monks and but think about how much they have to sacrifice for that and uh you know i don't know i mean i i, I like reading this stuff it is helpful um but maybe i just need a little more direction on how to actually apply this because i think i can see the problems that it's addressing but i don't know how we i mean i don't know what we do you know yeah. uh and, and it's one of those things it is it, when you talk about social media and all this stuff, it's like, yes, we get it, we get it, we get it, and no one changes, and we just keep doing it. And it's like, I, I don't know. It, I, it, it's sort of like prayer. Everybody complains that they don't have time for prayer. And I'm like, well, shouldn't we be able to – is this impossible that what's being asked of us, or is this possible and we're not willing? It's you definitely know? that, yeah. Well, I think, I think what this shows is that it is really hard to live a good, well-ordered human life. Yeah. And I think part of what it is to live a well-ordered life is to have these kinds of struggles where we're reflecting and like, not crisising, but just like really, really like we're trying to figure out what it takes to live well. And that itself is part of living well. Yeah. Like maybe that's moments uh, of like struggle. Maybe that's my impatience right now. I just want someone to give me an answer, a checklist to do it. But you did mention something about, you did have that hot take about how uh, you think people are turning from the faith because Oh yeah. They're not growing up in like communities. Like it's it, like it used to be that families would be, it'd be the parents and their extended families. And so, I mean, is that still something you, uh, is that just a, a 1am hot take or is this something that you really stand by? It was a 1am hot take, but I think there's some truth to it. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that kids keep the faith of their parents when they see it like regularly and faithfully exercised. Um, and so if you're part of an actual community that is professing and exercising the faith regularly and you see it happening all the time around you by all of the people that you trust, <clears throat> I think that that goes a long way to preventing childhood apostasy. And so if you've got like faithful grandparents or, you know, multi-generational, intergenerational families living together, you're going to see the faith exemplified and lived out much more clearly and much more consistently then just by your parents and then on Sunday mornings, right? So this is an argument for just more doing life together. Like to the extent that we could do life together more, to that extent, it's actually going to have a positive influence on our kids. Um, so don't, don't divorce your kids from being able to see your faith being lived out, but also give them opportunities to see it being practiced by those who are good and trustworthy in their lives as well. Um, so other friends and family. So to the extent that we can do that more, I think that that's just going to have a better influence on kids. And there's actually a scientific literature behind this. It's called credibility-enhancing displays. Like kids are more likely to take a parent or guardian-type figure seriously about a religious issue if they see that person actually doing something sacrificial, something that costs them something when they uh, practice the faith. So the fact that you're willing to sacrifice something for your faith gives kids a sort of credibility enhancing assurance that this person is actually serious. Um, so yeah, I, that was a 1am hot take, but I think there's something, something correct there. Well, again, are we talking about moving, you know, your family down to where you are going to where your family is? You know, are we talking, I, I think this is a little bit more involved than just having your, having friends at church and then having play dates. And I sure. just don't know, again, I don't know how realistic it is. I mean, I knew you joked about a commune, but I mean, 
if you had kids right now and you were married, how would you apply this? How would you do this? I I would probably want to start a commune. That's my like <laughs> radical. Yeah. If like, you, I mean, what would yeah, that like? like genuinely, you, like you would just like have people couple, live in yeah, your neighborhood, or what? what like, no, like I, I'm all for like like either intergenerational home or like two or three families like living together. Um, whether it be like on a plot of land or in a big house or even on the same block, like like intentionally making it so that like me and two or three families that we're really close with live like within a couple minutes of each other. I think like that's huge. Like that kids could be able to, to run from one door to the next, one house to the next over and over and over and like do dinners regularly. And like that, that's sort of like living together, I think is, it was part of human life for almost all of our existence. and. We complain about loneliness and depression and all this sort of stuff. It's because we're not meant to live these isolated nuclear family type lives that the American dream has, you know, given us a vision for. But I think it's just, it's just not human. It's, it's anti-human to be able to like live just as a couple with your kids and raise them totally on your own and the pressure of that. And I don't know, it's a distinctly Western phenomenon and it's a post-industrial phenomenon. Um, but I don't think it's a human phenomenon. Hmm. Well, your commune, you could start your commune now in that house you're house sitting for. Just invite a few people over. and That's right. Move, move that down, happen. Brian. Have a bunch of kids and we'll all live together. <laughs> there you go. It's like, yeah, Paul, Uncle Paul never got married, but he still wanted a commune. And he just sits in the attic <laughs> reading books. That would be sad. But, you know. I'm happy to be the weird uncle to provide the hot takes if if that's what it takes. Well, you're already the weird uncle to many. So thank you. For better or for worse. I appreciate that. Well, this is a great article. We'll put it in the show notes if you guys want to check it out. And uh, this is a uh, good food for thought. And uh, we definitely want to come back. And oh, I do want to circle back on a future episode talking about some of the stuff you're studying. And I'm All glad right. that you're out there. I think you're going to do some good work and it'll be some good fodder for the for the podcast, for podcast banter which is what we're all about. That is. Come for the banter, stay for the the hot takes. The commune. The stay commune. for the commune. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you like this, share with a friend, follow us on Instagram, That'll Preach Podcast. And as I said before, we're going we're gonna to put the article in the show notes for you to check it out. And we will catch you guys next time.